If somebody were to ask you, why are you a Christian? What answer would you give? I want you to think about that just for a sec. If somebody said, hey, why are you a Christian? Why do you follow Jesus? Why do you wake up early on Sunday mornings and go to church on your day off? If somebody were to ask you, why are you a Christian? What answer would you give them? There's a lot of different answers, probably a dozen, maybe even a hundred different answers in the room. Some of you might say, well, because I was raised in Southeast Texas and growing up, that's just kind of what you did. You had a drug problem. Your parents drug you to church every Sunday. That's kind of just the way that it was. Or, or maybe you would say that you went to Awanas or VBS. Maybe you went to youth group or maybe you had some Christian friends in college who invited you to church and you came and the people weren't too weird. And so you decided you were going to come back and then you went to Next Steps and you got on a serve team and you got in a small group and it was a year, five years, maybe 10 years later, and you still find yourself in the church and you identify as a Christian. If somebody were to ask you, those might be some of your answers. Others of you, your answers would maybe be more supernatural, that you had an encounter with God and he proved himself to you through your experience. Maybe you were delivered from a drug addiction. Maybe you were healed of some sort of disease. Maybe God did a miracle in your marriage. Maybe God lifted your mental health issues and you were able to find hope and freedom. Whatever those is, those are good reasons. Those are very valid reasons. But what I wanna share with you is what I believe is the best reason. There is one reason to declare yourself as a Christian that stands above all others, and it's the resurrection of Jesus. If someone were to ask me, Byron, why are you a Christian? I would start off by telling them that I met Jesus in jail, but then I would tell them later the reason why I stayed a Christian is because I could not deny the resurrection of Jesus. The reason I'm a Christian is because I cannot deny that Jesus lived, Jesus died, three days later, Jesus rose again from the grave. I am a Christian because I cannot deny the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is the foundation of the Christian faith. The resurrection is why everything else makes sense. The resurrection is the reason that we believe the Bible. The resurrection is the reason that we organize our lives under the authority of the scripture. If you wanna know why Christians have the types of marriages they do, it's because we believe in the resurrection. If you wanna know why Christians raise their children the way we do, it's because we believe in the resurrection. If you wonder why Christians budget and save and steward and spend their money, the way that they do. It's because of the resurrection. The resurrection is the foundation for everything that we do, everything that we think, and the way that we believe in our lives. Everything is founded upon the resurrection of Jesus. It's the resurrection that gives us grace. It's the resurrection that gives us hope. It's the resurrection that gives us faith. It's the reason that we are here today because of the resurrection. And so today, I get the great privilege, the great honor to be able to teach you about the resurrection. And here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna give you 21 reasons why you should believe in the resurrection. You say, 21 reasons, that's a whole lot, I know. <laughs> but if it's the foundation of our faith, then we need to make sure that that foundation is secure, amen? Because the resurrection is the foundation of our faith. The reason why I give you 21 reasons today is twofold. The first reason is to evangelize. The second reason is to equip. I want to evangelize you because I know that there's some in the room who are not yet Christians. But by the end of this sermon, that's going to change. Amen. That's the reason you're here. You're here because the Holy Spirit led you here or an annoying friend brought you here. But either way, we're going to get you saved. All right. So I'm going to give you 21 reasons why you should believe. So first, it's to evangelize. But secondly, it's to equip. Ephesians 4 tells me that my job description as your pastor is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. You are the saints. And every single one of you have friends, family members, somebody that you know and love who do not yet know and love Jesus. And inevitably, you're going to go home this week and you're going to have a conversation with somebody and then they're going to ask you, why do you believe in Jesus? Or they're going to refute your faith or they're going to challenge your faith. Between services, I had a young man just gave his life to Jesus three weeks ago and he came up to me and he said, wow, I'm so, I'm so glad you preached this sermon because my friends were making fun of me about being becoming a Christian, and I didn't know what to tell them. 
Well, now he knows what to tell them because I am equipping that young man to begin to share his faith. The Bible tells us that we should be ready in season and out of season to give a defense for our faith. And so today, I'm going to give you 21 reasons both to evangelize and to equip you to believe in the resurrection because the resurrection, if you're taking notes, is the foundation for our faith. The resurrection is the foundation that establishes the Christian faith. So without further ado, let's read it all up front, make a couple of observations, and then 21 reasons. Hope you packed a snack because we might be here for a while. All right, here we go. But we came to church, amen? Okay, we didn't go to Luby. We came to church, right? This ain't just a gas station. This is a place to get filled with the Holy Ghost. Okay, here we go. The resurrection story, Mark chapter 15, verse 42. And when evening had come. So at this point, Jesus has died on the cross. It was the day of preparation. That is the day before Sabbath. It's Friday. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, he took courage and went to Pilate that we've been studying for the last three weeks. The Roman governor who condemned Jesus to death, even though he knew he was innocent, asked for the body of Jesus. Why do you ask for somebody's body? Because they are dead. Verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear Jesus had already died because he's dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, taking him down, wrapped him in linen shroud, laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of rock. And he rolled away the stone across the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And when the Sabbath had passed, 16.1, turn the page. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, Salome, they brought spices so that they might anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And there they were saying to one another, who will roll away this stone from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. And I love that Mark says this. It was very large. <laughs> I just love that. I just love the way that he writes. He's like, they, the stone was rolled away. Oh, by the way, it was a big stone. All right. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right. This is an angel dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed because that's what happens when you see angels. And he said to them, do not be alarmed because that's what angels say when people see them. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. The Bible is not boring. And if a pastor makes it boring, then shame on him. He, the disciples and Peter, that he is going to, before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Verse 8. And they went out, fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were uh, afraid. This is the 65th sermon in our study through the Gospel of Mark that we are calling the Simple Gospel. For the better part of three years, starting in March of 2018, we have been going verse by verse, line by line, through the Gospel of Mark, and this is how the story ends, with them running away, afraid and astonished, and they were silent. And you wonder, why would Mark close his book like this? Because for three years, we've just seen Jesus do incredible things. We've seen him do incredible things in the book of Mark. Like Jesus, he preaches, he teaches, he heals, he casts out demons, he gets in fights with the Pharisees, he walks on water, he feeds 5,000 people with a little boy's Hebrew Lunchable. I mean, Jesus is doing something some amazing things through his life and through his ministry. And then Mark culminates the entire story of the gospel with the resurrection. And he closes with them running away, afraid and silent because Mark closes this book asking this question, what do you say about Jesus? He wants for you to make a decision about Jesus for yourself. He wants for you to decide who Jesus is for yourself. He wants for you to confess and to declare who Jesus is. Mark 1.1 opens up with Jesus, the son of God. And then for the remainder of the book of Mark, everything that Jesus does is pointing towards testifying, revealing that Jesus is who he said he was, did what he said he did, that Jesus really lived, really died, really rose again. And at the end of the gospel of Mark, the resurrection account is the exclamation points for the argument that he is making. What do you do with the resurrection of Jesus? How do you 
explain the resurrection of Jesus. All these other things, maybe you can explain away. But the resurrection, you cannot explain away because the resurrection is real, true, verifiable, historically documented. The resurrection is real. And so you got to ask this question, what do you do with the resurrection? Because there's other religious leaders in the world, but I don't remember any of them resurrecting from the dead. None of them ever claimed to resurrect from the dead. If Jesus was just a good man, a good person who did some good things and died a tragic fate, like I've met a lot of nice people, but none of them came back from the dead. What do you do with this resurrection account? Some people would say that he was just a good man, but the Bible says that he was the God man, the second member of the Trinity, God becoming a man. And then the resurrection is the exclamation point on that statement. What do you do with the resurrection? See, people ask me, they say, Byron, why do you believe in Christianity? I would tell them because I cannot deny the resurrection. But if you turn the tables nine times out of 10, if you ask somebody, why aren't you a Christian? I'm pretty sure the resurrection wouldn't make the list. They wouldn't say, oh, because I don't believe in the resurrection. No, what they most likely would tell you is because of their experiences. They would say, well, you know, I grew up in church too. And I had a really bad experience at church. Or they would say, well, you know, I worked with a Christian one time and he wore a Christian t-shirt and he said he went to church, but he treated everybody like, like he was a jerk. And if that's what Christians are like, then I don't want to be a Christian. And so the reason I'm not a Christian is because somewhere someone did me wrong. And that's the reason that I don't want to follow Jesus because, well, I just don't like, I just don't like Christians. Can I tell you, that's not a good enough reason. That's like saying, I don't eat Mexican food because I went to Taco Bell one time. <laughs> Just so you know, Taco Bell ain't Mexican food. Maybe that dude won't a Christian either. But don't just get rid of Mexican food because you had one bad experience. Go to a good restaurant, maybe go find a better church. right? Because blaming other people is not an excuse for you to deny the resurrection. What do you do about the resurrection? Most people will talk about their experiences or in the 21st century, people talk about their feelings. They'll say, well, I just think and I just feel and in my opinion and my preference, I just, don't, I just don't feel, I just don't feel like that's right. Because you know, the church, when the church is, they're just so outdated, they're anti-science, they're bigots and homophobic. And, you know, I mean, Christians, they're, you know, they're just so intolerant, so judgmental, so hypocritical, and they are dumb. That sounds very tolerant of somebody who's so non-hypocritical of you to say that. Thank you very much. Let us know how you really feel. Because we live in a society where people can get away saying all sorts of things about anybody and everybody. Uh, but Christianity, they, the rules don't apply. So if you scroll through TikTok, Instagram, social media, YouTube, and you watch the videos, right, what you'll see is people get away with saying things about uh, Christians they couldn't say about Muslims, or they couldn't say about the LGBTQ plus community. You can't say the same thing about women. You can't say that because that's offensive, but you can say it about Christians. You wouldn't say that about left-handed people, even though they make 10% of the population. Everybody who's left-handed, raise your left hand. Thank you. We're together in this. All right. But you can say these things about Christians and everybody's like, you're so brave making fun of Christians, right? And what's their argument against it? Their feelings. I just think, I just, my opinion, my, my feelings are, okay, let me, let me say something. I'm going to lean in. I love you. Your feelings can be very real, but feelings are not always reality. And, and what we're dealing with here is what's called truth. And truth is what corresponds to reality. And the reality is the resurrection is real. See, facts and feelings are very different. And Christianity is based off of facts. It's not just based off of feelings. Okay, like, I, sometimes I read the Bible and I'm like, ooh, I don't really feel that. Sometimes I come to church and I'm like, I just don't really feel like it. When I first got saved, there was a lot of just renewing of my mind in Christianity because so much of what I read and so much of what I saw really challenged my opinions. And I'm like, I disagree with that. I disagree with this. I disagree with that. And so I had a really hard time, but I just came to this conclusion that if I disagree with God, maybe I'm the one who's wrong. 
Like how arrogant of is it is to say like, God, I'm smarter than you. And I know you wrote a book, but let me, let me just edit that book a little bit. Oh, yeah, there we go, there we go. And then eventually, if you notice something, we always end up with a God of our own making. Have you ever noticed that? Like God always just ends up looking like you instead of you being made in the image and likeness of God? I just came to this conclusion that if I read the Bible and I disagree with it, maybe I'm the one who's wrong. Because facts don't really matter when it comes, or feelings rather, don't really matter when it comes to your facts. Right, truth is truth regardless of what you think. Right, two plus two always equals four. No matter how much you strain and how much you imagine it equals pineapple, <laughs> two plus two will always equal four because truth is what corresponds with reality. And if you don't believe in the truth, then you're living in an alternate reality. Because the reality is the resurrection is real. And these are real, true, verifiable, historical facts that I'm about to share with you. When I became a new Christian, I struggled with this a lot. I didn't believe in the supernatural. I didn't believe in the miraculous. I didn't even believe in the Bible. But I couldn't escape the resurrection. How do you explain the resurrection? And so just sitting there and reading the Bible and studying other pastors and authors and theologians, reading through all these different evidences for the resurrection, I came to this conclusion that the resurrection is real, which means God is real. Jesus is that God. I am not God. Therefore, everything in my life needs to change. And I began to reorder and recalibrate my life based upon the resurrection, right? A defense for the faith didn't get me saved. I had a real encounter with Jesus, but then it was apologetics. Then it was studying the resurrection that secured and anchored my faith for the last 15 years. And so what I'm about to share with you is things that I've learned over the course of time that I want to leave with you. I want to encourage you. I want to preach this to you because the resurrection is the foundation for our faith. And if you're here today and you are not a Christian, you got to do me a favor. You need to be intellectually honest with yourself about what I'm about to share with you. There's two reasons people don't believe in Jesus. When it all boils down, two reasons. First reason, ignorance. So you don't know what you don't know. And so... Some of you, you don't know what I'm about to share with you. You just, you don't know it. And that's not necessarily your fault. It might just be the society environment that you live in because you've been indoctrinated and brainwashed by social media. You just don't know these things. And so you're ignorant. And so I'm going to teach you because you don't know what you don't know. And now you know, you know? <laughs> but number two, if you're not a Christian and the answer is not ignorance, then it's because of your own arrogance. You're just arrogant. You think you know better than God. You think you know better than scholars and theologians and authors for the last 2,000 years. You think you know better than others, and you just don't want to accept it because you just don't want to accept it. So you have to be intellectually honest with yourself. Is the reason that I don't believe in the resurrection based on facts or based upon my feelings? And if it's the facts, well, then you need to make a decision as well. And Mark closes his book, they ran away and they were afraid because he's writing to the church and he's saying, this is really what happened? Now you have to make a choice and you have to make a decision. What do you do with the resurrection of Jesus? So without further ado, we're going to dive in. 21 reasons that you should believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Don't matter. I got the mic. <laughs> Here we go. First reason is because... Because of the Bible. Now, immediately, some of you are going to stop here and say, Byron, you can't use the Bible as justification for your belief. Because, well, that's the Bible. And everybody knows the Bible has been twisted and corrupted by man over the last 2,000 years. You ever heard that? You ever heard somebody say, the Bible's like that, ain't that game of telephone. Where like, you're, you're in like first grade and somebody says something. And then you have to go tell the next person, the next person. And by the time it gets back to the first person, it's completely different than what it originally was. Like that game of telephone, they say, oh, that's what the Bible is. Because every generation, they just change it. Okay, let me just submit some extra evidence to you. Here, here's a couple of things. Let's consider ancient documents such as Plato, the father of Greek philosophy. Did you know that we only have uh, a couple hundred of Plato's writings and the earliest dated writing of Plato, let me get this right, 
1,200 years after his death. How about Aristotle? The earliest manuscript we have of any work of Aristotle was 1,400 years after his death. Julius Caesar wrote the Gaelic Wars. We have 10 copies, and the earliest manuscripts date to 900 years after his death. Homer's Iliad, one of the greatest works of literature in all of human history, we have today 900 copies of early manuscripts dating to 400 years after his death which would lead me to believe that Aristotle never existed. I mean, it would make me think that Homer didn't write the Iliad, that Julius Caesar didn't write the Gaelic Wars. I mean, I mean if that's what we're going with, then, then it, would make, it would make sense to me that none of these men ever existed or did the things that he did. And so we should discredit all of their literature and all of their work, right? No? Really? Okay, well, let's just consider the arguments of the Bible. Did you know that there are 25,000 documents, manuscripts of the Bible dating 100 years after the life of Jesus? More historically verifiable and reliable than any other ancient document in the world. If this was a court case, then the case would be closed. The most reliable document in ancient history. 900, 1500 years after the death, 25,100 years after the death. And let's just go ahead and put a little cherry on top because there is all of those manuscripts are within 99% accuracy of each other. The only difference is somebody forgot to put a comma or maybe they misspelled Josephus's name. Other than that, I don't really know, but, but that's all it is, is, is just minor textual variance. How is this possible? Because this isn't just any book. This is the book that God wrote. This is not speculation about God. This book is revelation from God. This is the only book that claims to speak authoritatively about God because this is the very word of God. The Holy Spirit inspired and carried along men as they wrote this book. Every word is breathed out by God. It's not only true news, it's good news, and it's helpful for us to live our lives because God knew that 2,000 years later, you would be here in downtown Baltimore and he knew that you needed to know about the resurrection. So four gospel authors wrote it in there for you because this is the book that God wrote. The reason I believe in the resurrection is because I believe in the veracity of the Bible. The second reason that I believe in the resurrection is because I believe in history. I love it that if you give science and history enough time, eventually it catches up with the Bible. There's an entire field of science merged with history that's called archaeology. And archaeology is actually created to investigate the claims of Scripture. So the Bible will say, this is buried here. And then people will be like, is it really? Let's go see. And they'll go and they'll dig it up. And they're like, well, gee whiz, it really is buried there. Because that's what like doctors and scientists say. They say, gee whiz. Gee whiz, it really is buried there. Golly. <laughs> but what's, what's fascinating is that if you give it enough time, eventually... Well, it only just serves the purpose to prove the Bible is true. So last week, we actually looked at a man named Simon of Cyrene. I was going to share this with you last week, but I didn't have enough time. And so I thought, well, this one's already going to go over. So let me share with you this picture, okay? This is a sarcophagus of a man that was found in the Middle East. And in this sarcophagus, if you show the next slide, it's the, actually the sarcophagus of Simon of Cyrene because it says Alexander and Rufus. What does Mark say? Simon of Cyrene, father of Alexander and Rufus. There it is right there. Crucifixion of Jesus verified by history. But if we go even further into like different studies of history as well, real historical, verifiable, secular, outside of the Bible documents the life and even the death of Jesus. So I'll just give you a couple. Uh, you can go read about Pliny the Younger. You can go read about Tacitus. You can go read the philosopher of Rome, Cicero. And there's another man, Sodanes, who was actually hired by Nero as his biographer to investigate the growth of the early church. And he documents the belief about the resurrection of Jesus gathering on Sundays. And the most, the most verified is a man named Josephus Flavius, he writes in his Antiquity of the Jews about this new sect of Christianity that has been rising up and going through Jerusalem. And in AD 37, 
He writes, now there was at this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works. And Pilate, who do we see in the story today? Pilate, at the suggestion of principal men among us, so he was among those who called for the crucifixion of Jesus, condoned him to death on the cross. But those that loved him did not forsake him. And here's the kicker, why? For he appeared alive to them on the third day documented, non-Christian, secular history proves that Jesus really lived, Jesus really died, Jesus was a real person who really conquered and defeated death. Resurrected again on the third day, documented AD 37. Mic drop, boom shakalaka, put a cherry on top, Jesus historically. That's the reason I believe in the resurrection. Number three, because Jesus was crucified. Mark adds this little word, and they led him out to crucify him. But they don't really give a lot of description of what crucifixion is because everybody in that day would have known what crucifixion was. So last week, we did a very in-depth study on crucifixion. If you want to go listen to that message, it's available for you online. But let me briefly explain to you. Crucifixion started with what is known as scourging. They would take and tie you to a whipping post. Every square inch of your body would be exposed as they take a cat of nine tails or a flagomer, and then they would beat the back of the person with hooks, ball bearings, and bones inside the whip, and they would rip the flesh off a person's back while their muscles and bones and internal organs would be exposed, and they would lie in a pool of their own bodily fluids and blood. Most people didn't survive the scourging, but Jesus was a tough, strong man, and so they laid a crossbar and made him carry it a mile down the Via Della Rosa. As he's carrying the crossbar, They go to the place of his crucifixion, dislocate his arms and his legs, drive nine-inch nails through the most painful centers of the body, lift him up, hang him on the cross as he chokes, asphyxiates, and then he would choke to death on his own bodily fluids, drowning while he's hanging up there on a cross. If you were to say Jesus died any other way, maybe I would give that to you. Maybe. But Jesus didn't die just any death. He died the death on a cross through crucifixion. Crucifixion was so brutal and heinous, they had to invent a word to describe it, excruciating, which literally means from the cross. The Romans, they came up with it as state-sponsored terrorism, saying, if you follow this man, this will be your fate. He didn't die in a car crash. He didn't die of an overdose. He didn't die in his sleep. He didn't die in a diabetic coma. He didn't die from glaucoma. He didn't die from any of those other reasons. You know why Jesus died? Because he was crucified. Give me any other way, maybe I would give it to you, but not being crucified by Rome, the most brutal, heinous, torturous death known in the history of man. He was crucified, which leads to number four. Jesus died. As you read through Mark 15, you can see the shock at how they're surprised that at this point, Jesus is already dead. I mean, let's just look at what it says. It says that Pilate was surprised to hear that he'd already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked whether he already died. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. It says he is dead, dead, dead. He's dead. He dead. Like, let's just, let's just consider the events. If the scourging didn't kill you, the crucifixion would kill you. But there's another thing that happens just to make sure that he's dead They take a spear and they shove it through his rib cage, puncturing his heart sack. As they rip it out, blood and water flows to the side. And the centurion's like, he dead. So if the scourging don't kill you, the crucifixion will kill you. If that don't kill you, not having a heart will kill you. Put them all together, he dead, dead, dead. He's dead. And, And some people say, well, you know, I mean, I just don't know. Maybe they thought he was dead. Be very careful not to fall into what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. You know what that is? Where you think you're better than primitive and ancient people. You think, oh, they're ancient and they're primitive. They're so, they're so outdated. They didn't know what they were talking about. We are so much more evolved today. We are so much more intelligent than they were. Let me just remind you, there's kids who are eating Tide Pods right now on Instagram, okay? We are not so much more intelligent than they were. 
I would submit to you that without medical intervention, without hospitals, without medicine, the ancients were probably more familiar with death than we are. Because they have friends and family members, they have coworkers, people who are close to them in the soldiers, they would have to deal with death on a regular basis. And so I would submit to you, they know death better than we are because they're closer and they've experienced more death than we will. So when they say he's dead, he's dead. Which leads to number five, I believe that Jesus resurrected because Jesus was buried. So Mark tells us that the women, they come and they wrap Jesus in burial cloths. It says they come to anoint him with spices. Joseph gave him a linen shroud, wrapped him in the linen shroud, laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of rock, and they rolled the stone against the tomb. So let's just say, possibly, Jesus survived the scourging, survived the flogging, survived the crucifixion, survived the spear to the heart. They wrapped him now in 100 pounds of burial cloth and spices, mummifying Jesus, laying him in a cold, dark tomb, hewn out of rock, and in night, it would drop down below freezing. Let's just think about a person who has had trauma and had all of the torture he's gone through, bleeding out, wrapped in 100 pounds where you cannot move, placed in a hewn rock with below freezing temperatures, and then three days later, he unraveled himself, rolled away the stone, stretched, and then just walked away? Can I just tell you, it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a Christian. To believe that he could do all of those things because Jesus not only died, but Jesus was also buried. And then three days later, he rose again. This is why I believe in the resurrection. I also believe in the resurrection because, because of prophecy. That's number six. If you write that down, it's It's prophecy. The Old Testament had been prophesying that this would happen. I mean, the people were expecting a Messiah, but the Old Testament had been prophesying and declaring about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus for thousands of years. One of those prophecies, if you want to go home and have your mind blown, is Isaiah chapter 53. Just read the whole thing. Go back and read Mark 15 and Mark 16, and it's amazing. Isaiah writing 700 years before Jesus writes this. He, he says, he was cut off from the land of the living. He was stricken with the transgressions of my people. What is the land of the living? That's dead. And then the transgressions of my people... Christ died for our sins, and he made his grave with the wicked, crucified between two criminals, and a rich man in his death. What does Mark 15, 43 say? Joseph of Arimathea, who's that? A respected member of the council. Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus, but that's only one. In the Old Testament, there's 1,000 prophecies given through the Old Testament, and 300 of those prophecies refer to the life of Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark, we have already seen 200 of those prophecies be fulfilled, and in Mark 13, we saw that 100 of them are about the second coming of Jesus, and you better believe if he is faithful to fulfill 200, he's going to be faithful to fulfill the other 100 because Jesus... Jesus was prophesied through the Old Testament. The prophecies prove the resurrection is real. Do you know how many other sacred texts contain prophecy? Zero. So the Quran has zero prophecies. In fact, the Quran doesn't even claim to speak on behalf of God. It's Muhammad's words about God. Zero prophecies. In the Vedas of Hindu, zero prophecies. Confucius, Buddha, zero prophecies. John Smith, of Mormonism, the pearl of great price, and the book of Mor zero prophets. You know why? Their gods are false gods. Our God is the true God. Their gods are liars. Our God tells the truth. Zero prophecies in any ancient, uh, any ancient religious text. None, because they can't do it. Only our God can. I believe because of prophecy. The seventh reason is I believe because Jesus predicted his death. We've already seen this in the Gospel of Mark on, on four occasions. Mark 8, 31, if you were with us, Jesus predicted his death. He said, the son of man must suffer, die, but three days later he will rise. They didn't hear him the first time, so he said it again. Mark 9, 31, 
He says, the son of man must suffer many things, be betrayed, handed over to the chief priests and religious leaders, and he will be killed. And three days later, he will rise again. Mark 9, 35, Jesus tells him a third time. Do you know why Jesus had to tell him three times? Because they weren't listening the first time. He had to tell him three times because they weren't paying attention. Some of you moms, you understand that, right? How many times do I got to tell this kid? But Jesus just kept telling him over and over again. Mark 14 is the fourth time that Jesus predicted his death. And here's what he says in Mark 14. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will, the sheep will scatter. That's crucify Jesus. The disciples will abandon him. What do we see in Mark 14? As Jesus is arrested, the disciples, they run away. But then he says this. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee predicting his death, burial, resurrection, and the location following the resurrection. And what did we read right here? In Mark chapter 16, it says this. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they lay them. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he has gone before you to where? Galilee. There you will see him just as he has told you. Now listen, there's a lot of things that I can predict. I can predict this sermon is going over time. I can predict that my daughter's gonna ask me a million questions when I get home. I can predict my car's still gonna be in the parking lot, I hope. I can predict the Cowboys are still gonna suck this year. I can predict there's probably someone in here who's upset the pastor said suck. But you know what I cannot predict? My death, burial, resurrection, and the location following my resurrection. You know why? Because nobody's like Jesus. There is no one like him. There is no one beside him. There is no one compared to him. There ain't nobody who can do what Jesus did or say what Jesus said because Jesus and Jesus alone is God. I believe because Jesus told us as he predicted his own death. Amen? Amen? Sorry, cowboy fans. Number eight. Because the tomb was well known. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member. This ain't some dude they found on the side of the streets. He is a respected member of the council. And then it tells us the names of the women. Two Marys, Joseph, uh, the mother of Joseph and Salome. And then you have in John's gospel, John and Peter running to the empty tomb. You know how they got to the empty tomb? Because they knew where it was at. It's well known. And Pilate gave permission for Joseph to take the body and lay it in that tomb. Do you know what that is? That is a legal exchange. The governor of Rome is not just doing favors on the side for people. There's a legal exchange. There's documentation between this. Joseph of Arathea purchased this plot of land. You know what, you know what that means? He knows where it's at. I mean, it's not like he just like forgot his keys one day and he's like looking for his AirPods and he's like, I can't find my AirPods. Somebody find my phone, ping it real quick. Can't find it. No, he knows where it's at because he bought it and then he made a legal exchange with Pilate in order to have him buried there. And then the women, they know where it's at. Peter and John know where it's at because the tomb was well known. Let me ask you, how many of you have somebody who's close to you who has died and then you go and you visit their grave? For example, my, my, my brother died when I was a child. And so growing up, every year we would go visit my brother's grave. I could still take you and tell you exactly where it's at and all the different burial plots of my family who are buried every Thanksgiving and every Christmas, we would go and we'd visit my brother's grave. I could take you there right now. You know why? Because I know where it's at. Because I loved my brother, I loved my family members, and I know where they're at. Mary, Salome, Joseph, Peter, John, they loved Jesus. They knew exactly where he was buried at. The tomb was well known. But also, the tomb was well guarded by Romans. It says that Pilate gave permission for the Romans to guard the tomb. How many of you ever said that? Maybe they just stole the body of Jesus. Maybe Jesus really did die. Maybe he really was buried. But maybe they just came and stole it. Maybe that's the reason that nobody can find it. Okay, let's just, let's just think about that for a moment. Um, can you imagine three women trying to break into a empty tomb in front of Roman guards? 
Just imagine like, I just, I just picture like my Nana and Ashley and, you know, maybe like JC, our children's director, like, shh, we're going to break in. It's like a mission impossible. Okay, Didi, roll the stone away. And they're like, ah, I can't do it. Ah, I can't do it. And then like JC's suspended by some rope just going down like, oh, like this. You really think three women? That's why he had to write about the stone. It was very large. But not only that, it was guarded by Roman soldiers. Now, in VBS, you probably saw pictures of like the Roman soldier. He's like standing outside a tomb. A guard is not just one person. In that day, a guard of soldiers was 50 soldiers. So you have 50 soldiers standing, watching outside the empty tomb of Jesus to make sure that nobody comes and steals the body. Because the Jewish religious leaders, and I want to make sure and make certain because of like anti-Semitism, I don't want anyone to think that the Jews killed Jesus. It was the religious leaders who killed Jesus because religion ruins everything. Jesus was Jewish and many people were Jewish and loved Jesus and the early church and Christians were actually Jews as well. So it was the Roman soldier, I mean, the Roman soldiers and the religious leaders, they said if word gets out about his resurrection, the second myth is going to be worse than the first. So give us a guard of soldiers. Pilate places 50 soldiers outside the tomb, and three women sneak past all of them and rob the body. Really? No, it was guarded by Romans. You really think that the world's greatest military superpower going to let three women steal them? No. I mean, these guys, that's their whole job. They're trained. They're soldiers. They're barbarians. They kill and slaughter and pillage and rape and maim countries everywhere they go. Remember at a time, Rome was all of the ancient world. Under the Pax Romana, you had the entire world unified under Rome. And then you think they just put 50 incompetent soldiers outside the burial place of this man they just crucified. Well, how was the tomb empty then? Oh, because the power of the resurrection, Jesus rolled the stone away. That's how it was resurrected. I believe because of the resurrection, because of the tomb was guarded. I also believe because it was women who found the empty tomb. This is my, my favorite. Mark gives us their names. Mary, Salome, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James or Joseph. He tells us exactly, here's these women. They're the first people who were at the empty tomb. Now, if you are going to invent a myth, a fiction, and you are going to create a lie, you would not choose women to be your testimony. Do you know why? Because in that day, much like many Muslim countries today, women don't have rights. Women can't own property. Women can't vote. Women can't, in some countries, can't even drive a car. But in that day, women's testimony was not held up in court. You would not believe a woman anything that she says. And yet when the Bible is saying the best news, the greatest news in history, the most important thing where all of human history is divided by this fact, BC before Christ, Anno Domini, after his death, the year of our Lord, who are the first people at the empty tomb? Women. You would never say that. You would choose a man. You would choose a respected man. You would choose a politician, a religious leader. You would choose a Pharisee. You would choose a king, an emperor. You would choose anybody, but you definitely wouldn't choose a woman. And what does the Bible do? Oh, yeah, women were the first at the tomb. Do you know why? Because the Bible doesn't have to lie. The Bible doesn't have to make it up or exaggerate. The Bible doesn't have to embellish the truth because the truth is power and the truth will set you free. Women were the first at the empty tomb. This also gives tremendous dignity to women. For every person who says the Bible is patriarchal or the Bible is misogynistic, not true. In fact, all of the advances on behalf of women are being made by the scriptures and being taught and through all of the church history because the Bible placed equality, dignity, and value on the roles of women. And so any person who is complaining about women and about the church, all they're doing is sawing off the branch that they're sitting on. The Bible gives extreme equality and value to women based upon the resurrection of Jesus. Number 11, the tomb was not enshrined. 
On my way here, I drove past a, a cross on the side of the road, and there was flowers and a memorial on it because somebody died there. They memorialized that person's death. And if you think about all of the major world religions, all of their grave sites are memorialized or enshrined. There is a philosopher named Edwin Yamaguchi out of the University of Miami, and he writes and he says, after studying 50, after studying, I found 50 religious leaders whose tombs have been enshrined in Palestine or the Middle East, 50 of them, from the period of Jesus. But yet there is zero evidence of Jesus's tomb. Do you know why? Because he's not there. Think about every other major world religion. Here's where Abraham is buried. This is the tomb of the patriarchs. That's where Abraham, the founder of the Jewish faith, is buried. Muhammad is buried at the Green Dome in Medina. Abraham is buried in Hebron. He's buried in Medina. And this is what's called a stupa. This is where the Buddha is buried. When the Buddha died, they cremated him, and they traveled to different holy sites in India. They placed his ashes in the ground, and they would build these stupas so that people could make journeys and pilgrimages to go and see their religious leader. Question, where's Jesus buried? Nobody knows. You know why? Because he didn't need it. I mean, the tomb was just like a three-day Airbnb rental. He's like, thanks, Joseph, for letting me stay at your place. Here you go. Here's the keys back. And I folded up my little towel for you, too. I didn't need it. Three-day weekend. Boy, that was a fun time. Resurrected, conquering the grave. He's not there because he is alive. If you want to meet Jesus, you don't go to the tomb. You go to him yourself. Because he's not at the tomb. We don't go visit holy places because we have Jesus, who is the only holy person. The tomb is not enshrined. How do you explain this? How do you describe this? What about this one? Because Jesus physically appeared after his death. People didn't go to the tomb because they went to town because that's where Jesus was at. I'm in Galilee. Why are y'all at my empty tomb? Go tell them, meet me in Galilee, just like I told you before. Jesus appeared after his death. He appears in the upper room. He appears to disciples. We'll see next week three categories of people he appears to. Some are on the road to Emmaus. Thomas touches the holes in his hand, the spear from his side. And then Paul tells us that over a 50-day period after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to 500 people. Look at what he says here. He says, what I delivered unto you is the first importance, the most important thing, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised again, when? On the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, he appeared to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And some are still alive. You don't believe them? Just go ask them, because they're still alive. They could tell you they physically saw Jesus after his death. The Bible also tells us that following the resurrection, Jesus goes, sits down, and he has breakfast with some guys. Right? Jesus has breakfast. He eats. He's not an apparition. He's not a ghost. He's a real person, and he's eating breakfast. You know why Jesus had to eat breakfast? It's the most important meal of the day. And after three days in a tomb, he was famished. And after doing battle with Satan, death, enemy, hell, and the grave, he worked up quite an appetite. So he sits down with his friends and he has some fish tacos for breakfast. That's Jesus, physically appeared after his death. But then the other, what we also got to recognize is some people would say that they just hallucinated it. They just made it up. They were just so overwhelmed with grief, they just hallucinated this experience. Now, let's just be honest. How many of y'all done drugs? My hand's raised. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, Freedom Ministries on Tuesday night. Thank y'all. Altars will be open afterwards. I've done drugs. I've done a lot of drugs. And I've hallucinated. But even my friends who are tripping with me, they would be like, yo, bro, that's on you. I'd be like, are you seeing this? The curtains are breathing, man. Whoa, there's a rainbow unicorn with a platypus mouth. Do you see that? That's insane. My friends are like, nope, quit licking the carpet. <laughs> That's on you. That's on you. Okay, don't go do drugs. Just take my word for it. <laughs> Hallucinations are private experiences, not public, and if they last longer than 50 days, you need help. <laughs> At this point, you have to realize how 
do you explain this? How do you describe this? What justification do you have for not believing? You gotta be honest with yourself. There's more evidence to believe in the resurrection than there is to reject the resurrection. But here's what I struggle with is some people don't believe simply because they don't wanna believe. If you're taking notes, write that down because that might be you. Some people don't believe because they don't want to believe. Your heart's just not there. Your heart's hard, your mind's made up, and don't let things like facts get in the way of my feelings. Don't let truth disrupt my reality. But some people don't believe because they don't wanna believe. If that's you, just lean in and listen to me. I love you, I'm glad that you're here. But next time someone asks you why you're not a Christian, don't blame somebody else. Okay, don't be like, well, when I was in youth group, I had to drink Coke out of a sock and I never went back again because they were more about playing games and they didn't let me play with them, okay? Stop. Stop blaming other people. Accept responsibility for yourself. Just say next time, I don't want to. So he says, why aren't you a Christian? You say, because I don't want to. Okay, just, just say that. Like, just be honest enough with me to do that. Like, quit blaming everybody else. We live in a society where everybody wants to blame everybody and nobody wants to take responsibility. Oh, it's my mom's fault. Oh, it's the youth group's fault. Oh, it's my college's fault. Oh, it's my boss's fault. Oh, it's the world. It's all these different things. Nothing's ever your fault. Next time, just, just take responsibility. Say, oh, the reason I'm not a Christian is because I don't want to. And if somebody asks you what the resurrection, just tell them. I listened to a sermon one time, and he gave me 21 reasons to believe, but I didn't want to listen to him. And when somebody says, why aren't you a Christian, get Jesus' name out your mouth. Just accept responsibility and stop blaming everybody else and say, uh, because I don't want to follow him. You don't believe because you don't want to. And you're trying to justify every other thing to make yourself sound smart. And you're just ignorant or you're arrogant. That's just really what it is. So just own it. Eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow you'll die. Just own it. You, believe, you don't believe it because you don't want to. 13, Jesus' family worshiped him as God. What would it take for your brothers to worship you as God? If you were to go to your brother and say, hey, I'm starting a new religion. Will you worship me as your God? You say, no, Satan, yes. After all the purple nurples and wedgies that you gave me as a kid, definitely Satan. Not worshiping you as God. If you're, if you, if moms, if your son came to you and said, um, hey, I'm starting a new religion. Here's some bulletins. I'm going to just show up really early on Sunday morning and pass these out. And then, by the way, if anybody asks, tell them I'd never send. What are you going to say? You're like, boy, I broke so many wooden spoons over you when you were a kid. Ain't nothing going to prepare you. Get your inside right now. Ain't starting no religion about you. Right? Wouldn't it true or false? <laughs> Acts 1, Mary joins the early church. James and Jude, books of the Bible written by Jesus' half-brothers, worshiping him as God. What would it take for you to worship your family member as God? How about resurrecting from the grave? It must have just been really challenging for James and Jude when they're like little kids, right? I mean, Mary's like kind of in there and they're like, who broke the lamp? And James is like, Jesus? It was me, it was me. And Mary's like, why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? It must have been really hard for them. Had a little complex, but yet, then they worship Jesus as their sinless savior and wrote two books of the Bible bearing their names because he is God and he resurrected. Explain the disciples' transformation. We have a group of men who betrayed, denied, rejected, and abandoned Jesus, running away, cussing out a little girl because they were afraid of death. Following the resurrection, Acts chapter two, Peter stands up, preaches Pentecost. 3,000 people get saved. Acts chapter four, we see that they're arrested, beaten, and thrown into prison. At the end of Peter's life, he is arrested by Rome, crucified upside down, because he said, I am not even worthy to die in the same manner as my Lord and Savior. Crucify me upside down. How do you explain the transformation that took in these men's lives? How they go from cowards to courageous. Cause, effect. That's the how. Every cause has an effect, and the effect was the transformation based upon the resurrection of Jesus. Every single disciple died a martyr's death. 
They got no benefit from it. There was no financial gain from it. They died homeless, penniless, poor. And every single one of them died a martyr's death minus John. And they boiled John alive in oil. He didn't die. So they sent him to a prison island called Patmos where he still writes five books of the Bible. This dude's like the Terminator. You can't keep him down. He's like, I'll be back. I'm going to write another book of the Bible. How's this happen? Oh, because of the resurrection. How do you explain the transformation in these men's lives? They were no longer afraid of death because they saw Jesus beat death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? To live is Christ, to die is gain. Because the Sabbath changed to Sunday. What does it say here in Mark? It says, on the first day of the week. You know what that is? That's Sunday. On the day before the Sabbath, that's Saturday. So Jesus crucified on a Friday in the grave on Saturday, resurrected on Sunday. And through the resurrection, our date of worship changed from Saturday to Sunday. That's a nexus event. That's a catalyst event. Right? Because the Old Testament, they've been worshiping on Sabbath day for 6,000 years. The Ten Commandments, one of the commandments was honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. The Sabbath was their Saturday through the resurrection. Now they're going to church on a Sunday. Listen, have you ever met church folk? They don't like change. Church people don't like change. Like if you move the piano, pastor's getting a letter. Right? You paint the wall a different color. People freak out. Church people don't like change. And yet, due to the resurrection, they change from Saturday to Sunday. That's a big change. What causes that change? Cause effect. The resurrection changed the day that they worship. The next thing we see is this. It's not only changed the way that we worship, but it also changes uh, communion, I believe. Next slide. <laughs> communion and baptism. In a moment, we're going to take communion, and then we celebrate baptisms here as a church. Communion commemorates his death, and then baptism commemorates his resurrection. 2,000 years later, churches all across the planet still celebrating communion and baptism still to this day. 17, I believe because of the gospel of Mark. Mark was the earliest gospel written, written in about 10 years following Jesus' death and resurrection. Mark was an eyewitness. Mark 14, we already saw that he wrote himself into the book as the young man running away naked in the garden. Go listen to that sermon. Hilarious. So you look at this and you, you, you think eyewitness testimony within 10 years writing a verified historical document. Mark, he writes this down for the faith community to hold on to the memory and to hold on to the destiny that Jesus performed as God. 10 years after now, let's just think about 9-11. If I were to tell you 9-11 never happened, what would you say? you say, you're crazy. say, no, 9-11 never happened. No, it happened. I remember where I was at. I was at Little Cypress Mauriceville High School, 10th grade, BCIS class, and I saw the, the towers fall. I, I saw it. Moment. And if you were really serious and I had a little cash, I would get you on an airplane and we'd fly to New York and I would show you the towers are gone. That was 20 years ago. Mark writes 10 years. If they wanted to disprove it, they could have. If they wanted to say this is a lie, they could have stopped it. If they wanted to say Jesus never rose from the dead, how do you explain that the message continues going to this day? If something that crazy would have happened, you would think that people would be able to tell others and squash the myth and the rumors, and yet they were unable to. This is also probably why Caesar and Rome hired other men to investigate the claims like Josephus because they didn't know what to do with it because the word kept getting out. And you know when the earliest documented Manuscript of Mark is found. Recently, they found one dating, 80 AD. Within 40 years following Jesus' death, we have a copy of the book of Mark. That's why I believe. I believe because of the new covenant. Last week, we saw that the temple torn from the top to the bottom. You know what that symbolizes? We don't have to go to a temple anymore because now because of the Holy Spirit, we become the temple of God. 
We don't have to go see a priest anymore because Jesus is our great high priest mediating between. Man, we don't have to perform sacrifices of blood and bulls, but we have access to the throne of God through the blood of Jesus. And the entire Old Testament religious structure is now done away with because now we have a new covenant with Christ now and forever. I believe because it makes the most sense. Logically, this makes the most sense that Jesus rose from the dead. You said, but that doesn't happen. I know, that's why it makes the most sense. You say, but it's a, it, it, it seems like a miracle. It is a miracle and it doesn't make sense, but that's the reason that it actually does because it only happened one time, one death for all man, one time resurrected so we all might be resurrected with him. It makes the most sense. So some people come up with ideas like it was a myth. They say it was a pagan myth. The pagans stole it from the Christians, or Christians stole it from the pagans. You ever heard this? Oh, yeah. Oh, you know, the pagans, they talk about the sun rising, and then the Christians come along, and they say the sun rose. I'm going to say something, and it's going to totally blow your mind. All right, you ready? Sun and sun are two different words. I, I, can, I, can, I can spell it for you if you don't believe me. So sun, as if in the, the sun, S-U-N. Sun as in like a sun, S-O-N. And in the Aramaic and Greek, they're completely different words because they didn't write the Bible in English. I didn't know if you knew that or not. Sun and sun are two different words. Like deer and deer, two different words. Like, like a deer is a furry woodland creature. And a deer is also a beautiful woman I married named Ashley. And I am so glad I did not marry a furry woodland creature. <laughs> if I did, I would no longer meet the qualifications of an elder. <laughs> and you would have to fire me. So, some people are into that, I guess. But um, uh, Two words. I'll edit that out. Two words. The Holy Spirit has left. Okay. Um, it makes the most sense that Jesus rose from the dead. I believe because the church still exists. Like some people are like, I don't like organized religion. Welcome to redemption. We're perfect for you. We are not organized or religious. Like, have you met the staff here? Like, ah, like sometimes it's like bad. Like you should... It, unorganized, getting better every day. But just think about the church. Like the church defies any logical expectation. It started with fishermen and it's grown now into a movement of 3.5 billion people all across the planet. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every single continent gathering, worshiping Jesus Christ as a resurrected Lord, Christ, King, God, and Savior. Like the church, they're just normal people like you and me. Church is just average people who have had an impact in their life because of, a, because of the resurrection of Jesus. And they go out and they share their faith and the church continues to grow and to grow and to grow. I believe in the resurrection because there's more churches than McDonald's, more churches than Target, more churches than Walmart, more churches than any package that could be shipped out by Amazon. The church just keeps growing, keeps thriving, keeps multiplying. Kings and queens have come and gone, but the church of Jesus is still here. Empires have risen and fallen, but the church of Jesus is still here. Philosophies and ideologies have come and they've gone, but the church of Jesus Christ is still here. It's outlived nations. It's outlived empires. It's outlived anything and everything. 2,000 years the church remains. How do you explain that because Jesus said I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail number 21 here we go because Jesus is still changing lives today Jesus is still changing people's lives today if you just look around the room raise your hand if Jesus has changed your life 
Look around the room. If you don't believe me, ask some of them. Go in the lobby, ask them. Take them out for coffee, ask them. What difference has Jesus made in your life? Jesus has changed lives. He is still changing lives to this very day. I have seen it with my own eyes. I have seen it over and over again. That's why there's 200 baptism locks in the lobby since we started the book of Mark because Jesus still changes lives. I have seen it. I have seen drug addicts be delivered. I have seen those with depression get hope. I have seen those divorces come back together, reunited stronger and better than they were beforehand. I have seen prodigal sons come home. I have seen people with cancer come forward, take communion, and as the the bread and the wine went in their mouth, a rush went through their body. She went and she got approval from the doctor, cancer-free. I have seen a man with a broken back get prayer in small group and go back to work a week later, remove his brace. I have seen these things over and over again in my life. I have seen people have hope. I have seen people have grace. I have seen a woman who was infertile come down front, receive prayer. Two weeks later, she was pregnant. I have seen these things with my eyes. I have even seen Baptists speak in tongues. I've seen it. I know he's real because he changes lives. And I know he's real because he changed my life too. 15 years ago, my life changed as I was sitting in jail for the third time. Possession charges, crystal meth, cocaine, distributing marijuana, arrested for the third time, sitting in jail, DWI, possession of pills, for the third time, and my Nana gave me a Bible. Three months, I got nothing better to do than to read this book. And so I just started reading it over and over and over again, and something happened as I read it. My life began to change. And that's the reason that I still preach out of this Bible to this day. If you look in the front of this Bible, it's got my SO number, 52022. Why do I do this? Because I want to remind myself every time I preach that no one is beyond the reach of God. And that Jesus changed my life, and I believe that he wants to change your life too. He changes lives. He's still changing lives. And if you're taking notes as we close, I want to leave you with this thought. Is that Jesus didn't just come to live in history. He came to live in your heart. He didn't just come to make a difference in human history. He came to make a difference in your heart. And here's what Romans 10, 6, 10, 6 says. If you believe in your heart that Christ was risen from the dead, then you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. I can give you 22 more reasons next week if you want. But at the end of the day, the choice is yours. At the end of the day, you got to make that decision. At the end of the day, that's on you. And I'm begging with you, I'm pleading with you. Give your life to Jesus today. It makes all the difference, not just in history, but in your heart. Because Jesus wants to make a difference in your life. For me, my mind is made up. For me, I'm, I'm solid. For me, my foundation, rock solid. But what about you? That's on you. That's your choice. And that's your decision to make.